Chapter 19, Part 2 of The Teeth of the Tiger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Teeth of the Tiger by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter 19. The Snare is Laid. Beware, Lupin. And this was happening at a distance which Don Luis estimated at a hundred yards. The path ended in three steps cut in the earth. At the top was a fairly large plateau, also encumbered with rubbish and ruins. In the centre, opposite Don Luis, stood a screen of immense laurels planted in a semicircle. The marks of trodden grass led up to it. Don Luis was a little surprised, for the screen presented an impenetrable outline. He walked on and found that there had once been a cutting, and that the branches had ended by meeting again. They were easy to push aside, and it was through here that the scoundrel must have passed. To all appearances he was there now, at the end of his journey, not far away, occupied in some sinister task. Indeed the air was rent by a chuckle so close by that Don Luis gave a start, and felt as if the scoundrel were laughing beforehand at his intervention. He remembered the letter with the words written in red ink. "'There's still time, Lupin. Retire from the contest. If not, it means your death, too. When you think that your object is attained, when your hand is raised against me and you utter words of triumph, at the same moment the ground will open beneath your feet. The place of your death is chosen. The snare is laid. Beware, Lupin.' The whole letter passed through his brain with its formidable threat and he felt a shiver of fear. But no fear could stay the man that he was. He had already taken hold of the branches with his hands, and was clearing away for himself. He stopped. A last bulwark of leaves hid him from sight. He pulled some of them aside at the level of his eyes. And he saw. First of all he saw Florence, alone at this moment, lying on the ground, bound at thirty yards in front of him and he at once perceived, to his intense delight, from certain movements of her head, that she was still alive. He had come in time. Florence was not dead. She would not die. That was a certainty against which nothing could prevail. Florence would not die. Then he examined the things around. To the right and left of where he stood, the screen of laurels curved and embraced a sort of arena in which, among yews that had once been clipped into cones, lay capitals, columns, broken pieces of arches and vaults, obviously placed there to adorn the formal garden that had been laid out on the ruins of the ancient donjon keep. In the middle was a small circular space, reached by two narrow paths, one of which presented the same traces of trodden grass, and was a continuation of that by which Don Luis had come, while the other intersected the first at right angles, and joined the two ends of the screen of shrubs. Opposite was a confused heap of broken stones and natural rocks, cemented with clay, bound together by the roots of gnarled trees, the whole forming at the back of the picture a small, shallow grotto, full of crevices that admitted the light. The floor, which Don Luis could easily distinguish, consisted of three or four flagstones. Florence Lavasseur lay inside this grotto, bound hand and foot, looking like the victim of some mysterious sacrifice about to be performed on the altar of the grotto in the amphitheatre of this old garden closed by the wall of tall laurels, and overlooked by a pile of ancestral ruins. In spite of the distance, Don Luis was able to make out every detail of her pale face. Though convulsed with anguish, it still retained a certain serenity, an expression of waiting, and even of expectancy, as if Florence, believing until the last moment in the possibility of a miracle, had not yet relinquished all hope of life. Nevertheless, though she was not gagged, she did not call for help. Perhaps she thought that it was useless, and that the road which she had strewn with the marks of her passing was more likely to bring assistance to her side than cries, 
which the villain would soon have stifled. Strange to say, it seemed to Don Luis as if the girl's eyes were obstinately fixed on the very spot where he was hiding. Possibly she suspected his presence. Possibly she foresaw his help. Suddenly Don Luis clutched one of his revolvers and half raised his arm, ready to take aim. The sacrificer, the butcher, had just appeared, not far from the altar on which the victim lay. He came from between two rocks, of which a bush marked the intervening space, which apparently afforded but a very low outlet, for he still walked as though bent double, with his head bowed and his long arms swinging so low as to touch the ground. He went to the grotto and gave his horrible chuckle. <laughs> "'You're still there, I see,' he said. "'No sign of the rescuer. Perseus is a little late, I fear. He'd better hurry.' The tone of his voice was so shrill that Don Luis heard every word, and so odd, so unhuman, that it gave him a feeling of physical discomfort. He gripped his revolver tightly, prepared to shoot at the first suspicious movement. "'He'd better hurry,' <laughs> repeated the scoundrel with a laugh. "'If not, all will be over in five minutes. You see that I'm a man of method, eh, Florence, my darling?' He picked up something from the ground. It was a stick shaped like a crutch. He put it under his left arm, and, still bent in two, began to walk like a man who has not the strength to stand erect. Then suddenly, and with no apparent cause to explain his change of attitude, he drew himself up and used his crutch as he would a cane. He then walked round the outside of the grotto, making a careful inspection, the meaning of which escaped Don Luis for the time. He was of a good height in this position, and Don Luis easily understood why the driver of the yellow taxi, who had seen him under two such different aspects, was unable to say whether he was very tall or very short. But his legs, slack and unsteady, gave way beneath him as if any prolonged exertion were beyond his power. He relapsed into his first attitude. The man was a cripple, smitten with some disease that affected his powers of locomotion. He was excessively thin. Don Luis also saw his pallid face, his cavernous cheeks, his hollow temples, his skin the color of parchment, the face of a sufferer from consumption, a bloodless face. When he had finished his inspection, he came up to Florence and said, "'Though you've been very good, baby, and haven't screamed so far, we'd better take our precautions and remove any possibility of a surprise by giving you a nice little gag to wear, don't you think?' He stooped over her and wound a large handkerchief round the lower part of her face. Then, bending still farther down, he began to speak to her in a very low voice, talking almost into her ear. But wild bursts of laughter, horrible to hear, interrupted this whispering. Feeling the imminence of the danger, dreading some movement on the wretch's part, a sudden murderous attack, the prompt prick of a poisoned needle, Don Luis had levelled his revolver, and, confident of his skill, waited events. What was happening over there? What were the words spoken? What infamous bargain was the villain proposing to Florence? At what shameful price could she obtain her release? The cripple stepped back angrily, shouting in furious accents, "'But don't you understand that you are done for? Now that I have nothing more to fear, now that you have been silly enough to come with me and place yourself in my power, what hope have you left? To move me, perhaps? Is that it? Because I'm burning with passion, you imagine? Oh, you never made a greater mistake, my pet. I don't care a fig if you do die. Once dead, you cease to count. What else?' Perhaps you consider that, being crippled, I shall not have the strength to kill you? But there's no question of my killing you, Florence. Have you ever known me kill people? Never. 
I'm much too big a coward. I should be frightened. I should shake all over. No, no, Florence, I shan't touch you. And yet... Here, look what's going to happen. See for yourself. I tell you the thing's managed in my own style, and whatever you do, don't be afraid. It's only a preliminary warning. He had moved away, and helping himself with his hands, holding on to the branches of a tree, he climbed up the first layers of rock that formed the grotto on the right. Here he knelt down. There was a small pickaxe lying beside him. He took it and gave three blows to the nearest heap of stones. They came tumbling down in front of the grotto. Don Luis sprang from his hiding-place with a roar of terror. He had suddenly realized the position. The grotto, the accumulation of boulders, the piles of granite, everything was so placed that its equilibrium could be shattered at any moment, and that Florence ran the risk of being buried under the rubbish. It was not a question, therefore, of slaying the villain, but of saving Florence on the spot. He was halfway across in two or three seconds, but here, in one of those mental flashes which are even quicker than the maddest rush, he became aware that the tracks of trampled grass did not cross the central circus, and that the scoundrel had gone round it. Why? That was one of the questions which instinct, ever suspicious, puts, but which reason has not the time to answer. Don Luis went straight ahead, and he had no sooner set foot on the place than the catastrophe occurred. It all happened with incredible suddenness, as though he had tried to walk on space and found himself hurled into it. The ground gave way beneath him, the clods of grass separated, and he fell. He fell down a hole which was none other than the mouth of a well, four feet wide at most, the curb of which had been cut down level with the ground. Only this was what took place. As he was running very fast, his impetus flung him against the opposite wall in such a way that his forearms lay on the outer ledge, and his hands were able to clutch at the roots of plants. So great was his strength that he might just have been able to drag himself up by his wrists but responding to the attack, the scoundrel had at once hurried to meet his assailant, and was now standing at ten paces from Don Luis, threatening him with his revolver. "'Don't move!' he cried, "'or I'll smash you!' Don Luis was thus reduced to helplessness at the risk of receiving the enemy's fire. Their eyes met for a few seconds. The cripples were burning with fever, like the eyes of a sick man. Crawling along, watching Don Luis's slightest movement, he came and squatted beside the well. The revolver was levelled in his outstretched hand, and his infernal chuckle rang out again. <laughs> Lupin, Lupin, that's done it. Lupin's dive. What a mug you must be. I warned you, you know, warned you in blood-red ink. Remember my words. The place of your death is chosen. The snare is laid. Beware, Lupin. And here you are. So you're not in prison. You warded off that stroke, you rogue, you. Fortunately, I foresaw events and took my precautions. What do you say to it? What do you think of my little scheme? I said to myself, all the police will come rushing at my heels, but there's only one who's capable of catching me, and that's Lupin. So we'll show him the way. We'll lead him on the leash, all along a little path scraped clean by the victim's body. And then a few landmarks scattered here and there. First the fair damsel's ring with a blade of grass twisted round it farther on a flower without its petals, farther on the marks of five fingers in the ground, next the sign of the cross. No mistaking them, was there? Once you thought me fool enough to give Florence time to play hop-o'-my-thumbs game, it was bound to lead you straight to the mouth of the well, to the clods of turf which I dabbed across it last month, in anticipation of this windfall. Remember, the snare is laid.' 
and a snare after my own style, Lupin. One of the best. Oh, I love getting rid of people with their kind assistance. We work together like friends and partners. You've caught the notion, haven't you? I don't do my own job. The others do it for me, hanging themselves or giving themselves careless injections, unless they prefer the mouth of a well, as you seem to do, Lupin. My poor old chap, what a sticky mess you're in. I never saw such a face. Never, on my word. Florence, do look at the expression on your swain's mobile features. <laughs> he broke off, seized with a fit of laughter that shook his outstretched arm, imparted the most savage look to his face, and set his legs jerking under his body like the legs of a dancing doll. His enemy was growing weaker before his eyes. Don Luis's fingers, which had first gripped the roots of the grass, were now vainly clutching the stones of the wall, and his shoulders were sinking lower and lower into the well. "'We've done it!' spluttered the villain, in the midst of his convulsions of merriment. "'Lord, how good it is to laugh, especially when one so seldom does. Yes, I'm a wet blanket, I am, a first-rate man at a funeral. You've never seen me laugh, Florence, have you? But this time it's really too amusing. Lupin in his hall, and Florence in her grotto. One dancing a jig above the abyss, and the other at her last gasp under her mountain. <laughs> what a sight!' "'Come, Lupin, don't tire yourself. What's the use of those grimaces? You're not afraid of eternity, are you? A good man like you, the Don Quixote of modern times. Come, let yourself go. There's not even any water in the well to splash about in. No, it's just a nice little slide into infinity. You can't so much as hear the sound of a pebble when you drop it in. And just now I threw a piece of lighted paper down and lost sight of it in the dark. Brrr! It sent a cold shiver down my back. Come, be a man. It'll only take a moment, and you've been through worse than that. Good, you nearly did it, then. You're making up your mind to it. I say, Lupin, Lupin, aren't you going to say good-bye? Not a smile? Not a word of thanks? Au revoir, Lupin. Au revoir. He ceased. He watched for the appalling end which he had so cleverly prepared, and of which all the events were following close on one another in accordance with his inflexible will. It did not take long. The shoulders had gone down, the chin, and then the mouth convulsed with the death-green, and then the eyes drunk with terror, and then the forehead, and the hair. The whole head, in short, had disappeared. The cripple sat gazing wildly, as though in ecstasy, motionless, with an expression of fierce delight, and without a word that could trouble the silence and interrupt his hatred. At the edge of the abyss nothing remained but the hands the obstinate, stubborn, desperate, heroic hands, the poor, helpless hands which alone still lived, and which, gradually, retreating toward death, yielded and fell back, and let go. The hands had slipped. For a moment the fingers held on like claws. So natural was the effort which they made, that it looked as if they did not even yet despair, unaided, of resuscitating and bringing back to the light of day the corpse already entombed in the darkness and then they in their turn gave way. And then, and then suddenly there was nothing more to be seen, and nothing more to be heard. The cripple started to his feet, as though released by a spring, and yelled with delight, Oof! That's done it! Lupin in the bottomless pit! One more adventure finished! Oof! Turning in Florence's direction, he once more danced his dance of death. He raised himself to his full height, and then suddenly crouched down again, throwing about his legs like the grotesque, ragged limbs of a scarecrow. 
and he sang and whistled and belched forth insults and hideous blasphemies. Then he came back to the yawning mouth of the well, and standing some way off, as if still afraid to come nearer, he spat into it three times. Nor was this enough for his hatred. There were some broken pieces of statuary on the ground. He took a carved head, rolled it along the grass, and sent it crashing down the well. A little farther away was a stack of old, rusty cannonballs. These also he rolled to the edge and pushed in. Five, ten, fifteen cannonballs went scooting down, one after the other, banging against the walls with a loud and sinister noise, which the echo swelled into the angry roar of distant thunder. "'There, take that, Lupin. I'm sick of you, you dirty cad. That's for the spokes you put in my wheel over that damned inheritance. Here, take this, too. And this. And this. Here's a chocolate for you in case you're hungry. Do you want another? Here you are, old chap. Catch!' He staggered, seized with a sort of giddiness, and had to squat on his haunches. He was utterly spent. However, obeying a last convulsion, he still found the strength to kneel down by the well, and leaning over the darkness he stammered breathlessly, "'Ha! Ha! Say, corpse! Don't go knocking at the gate of hell at once! The little girl's joining you in twenty minutes! Yes, that's it! At four o'clock! You know I'm—' a punctual man, and keep my appointments till the minute. She'll be with you at four o'clock exactly. By the way, I was almost forgetting. The inheritance, you know, Mornington's hundred millions, well, that's mine. Why, of course, you can't doubt that I took all my precautions. Florence will explain everything presently. It's very well thought out. You'll see. You'll see. He could not get out another word. The last syllable sounded more like hiccups. The sweat poured from his hair and his forehead, and he sank to the ground, moaning like a dying man tortured by the last throes of death. He remained like that for some minutes, with his head in his hands, shivering all over his body. He appeared to be suffering everywhere, in each anguished muscle, in each sick nerve. Then, under the influence of a thought that seemed to make him act unconsciously, one of his hands crept spasmodically down his side and groping, uttering hoarse cries of pain, he managed to take from his pocket and put to his lips, a file out of which he greedily drank two or three mouthfuls. He at once revived, as though he had swallowed warmth and strength. His eyes grew calmer, his mouth shaped itself into a horrible smile. He turned to Florence and said, "'Don't flatter yourself, pretty one. I'm not gone yet, and I've plenty of time to attend to you.' And then, after that, there'll be no more worries, no more of that scheming and fighting that wears one out. A nice, quiet, uneventful life for me, with a hundred millions one can afford to take life easy, eh, little girl? Come on, I'm feeling much better. End of chapter 19